Welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm Henry Jukes, a senior developer at Split Software, um, where I also help advise companies in running experiments. With me today is my fellow panelist, Jeffrey Groman. Hi, Jeff. How's it going? Doing great. How are you doing, Henry? Doing really well. Also on the show, um, our guest today is Joe Stevens. He leads infrastructure uh, over at Ascend.io and is going to be talking with us about his experience on building a multi-cloud environment and kind of that build versus buy uh, discussion of how you effectively execute against that. Uh, Joe, welcome to the show. Hey guys, good to be here. One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time, and a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. Awesome. To, to kick things off, uh, Jared, I'd love for you to kind of tell us a little bit about what Ascend does and kind of what your role is within that organization. Yeah. So the uh, so Ascend is a data engineering company. We build a product that is a uh, data flow platform where you can orchestrate all of your data processing uh, in a managed way across any cloud that you want. The easiest uh, metaphor, I think, for, for what we do is we do for data pipelines what Kubernetes really does for running containers. We are the only fully declarative uh, data pipeline tool in existence and ends up causing a lot of our uh, difficulties on the uh, inside of the product. <laughs> Not an easy problem to solve, for sure. So I assume your need to be multi-cloud is because your customers are going to be across all these different platforms. Is that right? Yeah. So I've actually, I've talked about this a little bit in the past. The, the simplest way that I was able to provide value to the company was just basically by walking in and saying, ah, I mean, it seems like we've got these cloud agnostic tools. I, I think we can expand our target market. I think we can just run in more places and and have more viable customers. And so we did. It, it's It was actually... The really what I would argue to be the core benefit of running on top of Kubernetes was that we were able to just roll onto three clouds with, I was about to say a little difficulty, but with only a large amount of difficulty. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, Kubernetes is, you know, as we've talked about previously on the show, it's a really powerful tool for being able to to run your code, really just focus on that Kubernetes layer. But But I think for anyone that's really worked with Kubernetes, knows, at least, you know, even working in a single cloud environment, there's still areas of the cloud underneath that will raise their head here and there. So, you know, I, I would assume you're trying to be in an environment where the Ascend developers don't need to worry about that stuff as much. So, so can you start to kind of talk about how you approach that problem, how you provide for the development team a layer that they don't really need to worry as much about the different clouds, or maybe they do? Yeah, it's um, that, that's effectively the, the core components of my job it is because we run in multiple clouds, everything needs to be streamed out of that direction. So that that kind of starts and ends at, at Kubernetes. It, it is for us, it is our deployment substrate. So when you are constructing a, a service, a job, a anything you need to run, you target Kubernetes with that deployment. If you are compatible with that API, you are compatible with all of our clouds. There are there are nuances to that. So there's things like underlying storage, or if you need to plug into that. Yeah, actually, it's it's mostly just like storage and load balancers. Any anytime you need to like fetch a resource by name from the cloud, you need to know what type it is, and the types vary by what cloud you're running in. But for the most part, we actually have a pretty pretty clean system, and this this extends all the way from the you know the, the infrastructure on top of which uh, our workloads run down to the deployment tooling itself. So for us, uh, you know, you there is a construct of an ascend, ascend environment. We run single tenant installations primarily, and within any given single tenant installation, there are two Kubernetes clusters that you can reference by name. There are two, you know, MySQL instances. Uh, there is an expected set of blob storage on, you know, whatever cloud you happen to be running upon. And what that 
means is uh, for the most part, developers don't need to, you know, per se, they want to deploy a new uh, environment or they want to, uh, you know, uh, authenticate to their clusters. They can just think about it in terms of a send construct rather than thinking about it in terms of the actual underlying cloud resources, which allows them to move much more quickly and not need to learn as much. So when working with these different clouds, is Ascend deployed within, you know, someone's existing instance, you know, like, like a managed service, or are you kind of fully managing the infra and, and just working multi-cloud just to be closer to their particular environment or, or whatever, but, but it's, you know, fully cost managed by Ascend? It's, it's actually, it's, it's a, it's a couple of things. So we, we have different deployment models that'll run through, but the, the, the reason we develop were, we, targeted the single tenant deploy initially was purely as a sales strategy. You know, we want to be able to sell to large enterprises with tough security regimens. And to do that, one of the simplest ways, you know, I, I saw this in my previous role at Salesforce, one of the simplest ways you can get past a security check is say, well, we'll just run in your cloud environment. You know, we'll, we'll run in your account and you have admin and you can shut, you know, our access down anytime if you have any concern. And just giving people that the confidence of that kill switch gets you through a lot of doors. So as it as it happened, partially as an artifact of the the kind of teams that we're frequently interacting with, which is sometimes data engineering teams that you know have their own cloud accounts, but sometimes data analytics teams who are primarily consumers of uh, of those resources um, and don't have the, those administrative privileges and can't just grant us an account to run in. We ended up having to develop solutions for both running in customer accounts or running in our own accounts. But we, we typically do ask for a fairly strong level of isolation. So in uh, you know, GCP and Amazon, that looks like an account or a project. In um, Azure, that's a resource group. And it, it's, it's in actually some of those nuances that you end up with some of the complexities of authenticating to these clusters consistently because of the way that the cloud providers actually tie this all together. Okay, that makes sense. So talking, I guess, a little bit higher level or, or lower level, depending on how you look at it, you know, Kubernetes is obviously something that, that's taken, gained a lot of popularity in recent years. And there's a lot of different companies approaching Kubernetes in different ways. You know, you can get a managed Kubernetes instance, you know, working with an organization like Docker or some of these other uh, companies. I, I believe at Ascend, you guys are actually managing the Kubernetes system yourselves. Um, how do you kind of look at that deployment process and, and kind of that build versus buy conversation? Um, you know, and, and kind of what levels were you looking at when you first did that evaluation? Uh, so we're actually not managing our own Kubernetes today. We okay. we we were using COPS in Amazon for a while. So we we, we started out on GCP. GKE is today still. Uh, by a mile, the best Kubernetes uh, offering that anyone, anyone has. We ran COPS on Amazon for a long time, but we actually ran into a lot of pain points around just not being able to be cost efficient in running our own control plane. You know, we, we could, you could get it to be stable or cheap was sort of the issue. And it, it, it turns out with the clouds, it's actually the same issue. They also <laughs> can get it stable or cheap. But what we found was the work that we put into to developing Kubernetes or, or to using a lower level tool like COPS wasn't providing a good return. It's, it was actually a quote from my CTO of um, imperative requires you to, uh, or empowers you to do everything, but also uh, requires you to do everything. And it's sort of a similar deal with, you know, if you're managing your own Kubernetes, like we found ourselves in situations where we would be managing the bootstrap workflow at a low level. We would be figuring out how to tune our disks and operations. And at, at some point, it's actually useful to not have those levers because if you have the levers, you're going to try to use them to fix something and that something might not be valuable to spend time on. Like a, a lot of the, the value that you really need to deliver is having a reliable product rather than necessarily the, you know, 99th percentile fastest product or most efficient. Um, and that, that does tie back to our core business offering of being managed and also being this reliable declarative service where the point is that you get there and you're not spending 
100 man hours on how to tweak and tune and fix all these pipelines because that's that's more valuable to depend on other things like getting a new data set for your analytics team getting uh you know doing the actual analytics work computers are cheaper than humans still <laughs> did, that, so did, then, did that answer that question <laughs> well, so, so i think you, you clarified um you know my my original misunderstanding so i guess then the question is is how do you approach it like how are you deploying kubernetes out and kind of kind of running these clusters so we we leverage cloud providers um we we have looked at a number of different options there there are oh god there's probably close to a dozen different Kubernetes providers that are single or multi-cloud that I can think of. The, the single cloud ones tend to be cheap because they're, you know, they're provided by the, the cloud provider. They generally just charge you for the control plane or they're free. So pretty good ROI built in. The, the providers that are multi-cloud, there's a pretty big range in price, but they tend to all bill on either CPUs or VMs. And we basically did the math and we would end up paying something like seven or eight figures a year just purely in like because of the number of instances that we have to one of these management planes. Uh, and it, it, it was not clear that that was worth doing. <laughs> So we, we we ended up just going with the cloud providers and that, that ended up buying a lot of differences where, you know, because we did not decide to do something that would be completely homogenous across all of our underlying clouds, we have to deal with the quirks of AKS versus EKS versus GKE, you know, where, uh, let's see, AKS, like, if you want to have spot pools, uh, they can't be the only pool in the cluster. It can't be completely preventable. If you're an EKS, you can't authenticate without having the Amazon CLI uh, sitting in your same machine. And it's it's these little quirks that we've learned to deal with that actually get into some of the, you know, well, uh, these are strictly speaking Kubernetes providers that are upstream compatible, but they're in the strictest sense of the word. <laughs> compatible. And not everyone else who is providing services to work with Kubernetes actually realizes all the implications of that. I see. So, uh, you know, trying to manage that and, you know, these nuances between the different systems. One of the things we talk a lot is, you know, one of the goals as a DevOps you know, infrastructure professional is trying to automate away the previous, the work that you're doing now. You know, you want to constantly try to make your job easier and easier. And from a starting point, it sounds like this this must not have been a particularly easy place to, to get things kicked off. Um, I would assume you guys are levering some degree of automation, whether it be Terraform or something else. Um, how, how are you kind of approaching that? And th how do you bake in some of these intricacies of the different clouds into that system? Uh, it's actually, it was pretty ugly at first. <laughs> um, or be, being entirely frank, it's Terraform works well enough for us. So it, it, it does the job of allowing us to create something that is a somewhat consistent API across clouds or, you know, I, I guess just more rider based. We can, you know, with a config of like a dozen inputs, build you a whole environment in any cloud. The inputs are slightly different by cloud. The, the trick actually came in a lot of cases with figuring out the nuances of each individual provider, because what we found is it's, it's very common in these managed Kubernetes providers for there to be some, you know, uh, thing you want to toggle, uh, let's say turning on monitoring or logging. And if you happen to touch that, it will destroy your cluster and rebuild it. In certain circumstances, this could be maybe you don't set, for example, OAuth scopes in GKE, I think was the, the issue. If you don't set them and you uh, rebuild your cluster, it will try to change the actual setting to whatever it thinks should be the default. And you have to ignore that change explicitly. So we, we ended up with some amount of pain points around uh, just basic operations and basic getting being able to run Terraform repeatedly without it, you know, 
inducing changes that aren't expected. And the other thing was actually just orchestrating around Terraform. I, I was I was looking at whether we could use Terraform Enterprise recently because we started to recently have a need to run Terraform remotely so we could have a static IP we could run Terraform from. And what I ran into was, well, remembered was, uh, we, we have this whole Python patchwork around our, our Terraform to go and fetch whatever happened to be the, you know, the, the credentials or these you know, various inputs for these Terraform scripts because managing all those as hard-coded secrets is a problem. You know, we, we can't commit those to Git. We need to be able to fetch them. And the you know, most straightforward way to do that is just pipe them in as command line arguments inside of some of the process. So it, it's we we kind of got there, but it means that we have a you know yeah, a, a fairly unique homebrewed system that other things like you know Terraform Enterprise aren't going to natively handle. So I'm I'm curious to sort of <clears throat> shift gears a little bit from the security standpoint. You know, one thing that sort of concerns us security folks a little bit about when we think about containers is, is the sort of the the um, immutable nature of them. And, you know, the sort of scenario that we think about is, okay, I've got this application running uh, in some container, whatever that is, and there's some kind of a security incident that happens. And maybe meanwhile, other things are also going on and the container is sort of, you know, let's say, recreated, you know, with patches or, you know, whatever, whatever needed to change. And all of a sudden, the old one's been tossed, the new one's in place. And now we have just lost all of those forensic artifacts that we needed, you know, as security uh, professionals to be able to sort of figure out well, what happened. Was it something real? You know, let's triage it. Let's figure out what's what's going on. But no, it's gone. <laughs> so, you know, and it's, it's interesting, like, you know, we were chatting a little bit before the show and, you know, chatting about the fact that we don't have a lot of great case studies of security incidents and running them, you know, in something like Kubernetes or, or any other sort of containerized system. Uh, so it's a lot we're sort of trying to learn. And I'd love to just hear how you guys are thinking about that or what questions you get from your clients about managing around that and, and you know, that that topic. So there's a couple things we think about there. As far as forensics, so we, we use Falco in our environments. It, it performs uh, the kernel level event monitoring. It backs it up to uh, GCS remotely. So we, we can do these, you know, post hoc forensics on, on events that do happen in the in the ecosystem. The, the the more broad strategy that we take though is that we we look at the security problem as something that it's it's probably not worth us being experts in it. You know, we need to know roughly what we're doing, but uh, it, it shouldn't be in the 90 percentile of our time. And this actually get, gets back to part of why we we leverage the cloud providers for Kubernetes is we will things like GKE, you know, you, you see a, a CVE come out for the Kubernetes API. Typically what we found is that by the time we actually look at our GKE clusters, because we, you know, we saw the RC, uh, RSS feeds for that post of the CVE, uh, they're usually already updated. Google is very, very good about this. It's it's not quite as tight of a story for, for Amazon and Azure, but it's it's uh, it's similar. They, you know, they may not be automatically rolling our masters for us, but they are releasing the patches as fast follows. But I, th I think actually that the thing that I find particularly interesting is that the, the the attack surface, so we don't generally support any SSHing to our nodes. We almost never need to do it. Uh, so the the attack surface that we actually have is just our core application APIs and the Kubernetes API. And Kubernetes API is developed by someone else. It's maintained by our cloud provider. You know, we're responsible for for making sure it's it's updated in certain cases, or you know, certain cases it'll be updated for us. But because you have this relatively narrow attack surface, it it limits the sort of things you need to worry about. Effectively, everything else that we have is fully private, so we we you know we don't have to worry quite as much about those. What we end up seeing is the vast majority of vulnerabilities in Kubernetes, the ones that, that actually can impact us, almost all of them have been DOS vulnerabilities. It's a bit weird. Uh, and, and it's usually just there is, you know, for some reason, this, 
you know, these, these public roles and public role bindings that you can have on your clusters that you should probably delete that allow people to submit, you know, uh, YAML to your clusters. And, you know, there was a billion laughs attack last year where you could uh, just have this, you know, 10 line YAML document that unpacked into a billion lols. And it's, it's a lot of things like that around around those, you know, like the, the validation of YAML and not not short circuiting and stuff. It's, it's been pretty good so far. Like we, we, we have not had an incident yet, knock on wood, but it, it seems to be a pretty well-maintained attack surface, particularly because so many people are invested in it so hard. Yeah, and, no, and I definitely understand where you're heading. And I think just to clarify this, I think, you know, maybe also for, for the listeners, I, I think what you're bringing up is a good point in that, you know, the way I think about it is there's really sort of two things that are going on. One is certainly, you know, anything that's vulnerable within just the container system itself, the overall sort of wrapper for, you know, the the code that's that's actually running. And to your point, you know, that's going to be up to the cloud providers, um, you know, and that's that's a tough one too, because, you know, what I've seen, and not necessarily in Kubernetes, I don't want to speak specifically for that, but what I've seen in other hosting environments is that even when a CVE comes out and you say, well, wait a second here, you're at, you know, rev level X and you need to be at X dot you know, two, and they'll come back and say, yeah, we get it. But the way that we've implemented it, we've already, the mitigation's already built in, even though we're not at that rev level, we're still, you know, we basically have a workaround in place or, or it's been mitigated and, and that sort of thing. And obviously you want to test that or, you know, so, you know, and folks are, but it makes it harder, you know, because, you know, it's not so simple as if you were just, you know, hosting it yourself and just saying, okay, well, I know I need update because, you know, we're not doing anything fancy around it. So we're not wrapping the wrapper. So, you know, so there, there is that piece of it, you know, and then what, you know, you were saying this, you know, I think that's another, uh, another piece of it that you mentioned, um, Joe, is that, you know, making sure that anything, anything that's being logged, you're shipping those logs off. Right. And that's absolutely what we want to do, whether you're containerized or whether you're running on, you know, bare metal, it doesn't really matter. We don't want those logs to be residing on the system itself. But, you know, this is where I wanted to clarify a little bit is that, you know, where we get into problems from a security and forensic standpoint is, let's say it's something that's not being logged. Um, there's a lot of artifacts that aren't being logged that I want to be able to get back into that system and take a look at. And it could be, you know, it, it, you know, here, I'm going to claim a little bit of ignorance and say the types of things you guys see maybe a little bit different from what I'm thinking about. So what I'm thinking about is, let's say you're running like um, an application that has user interactivity within it. So people aren't SSHing in it, but maybe they are either browsing to it or a mobile device connects to it or, or, you know, or mobile app, you know, connects to it or, or something like that. So there's a, you know, some kind of activity going on. So then there could be some artifacts that come out of just that use, <clears throat> you know, the way the users are doing it, or, um, you know, if it's been compromised in some fashion, it might even be just knowing, Hey, when, when did those users log in? What were they doing? And you know, stuff that may not show up in logs, but may be producing other types of artifacts, uh, either in memory or you know, on quote unquote disk or storage or you know, whatever it's actually again, this is sort of like um you have to sort of figure out where we can pull those artifacts from uh if they exist. But um yeah, so I, I don't wanna like I say, I think this is less of a question, more of just a sort of a clarification, because I think that. Sometimes it's sort of, you know, when, when somebody like a security guy like me says, uh, you know, how you secure that your, your, your system, you know, you're like, where do I start? Like, what are you talking about? Like, that's huge. You know, like that's an enormous question that could be, have many avenues. So I, I just feel like it's, it's always worth sort of clarifying that. And I, and I, I didn't ask that question so well in the beginning. So but that, that's sort of what I was thinking about. Yeah, I will say the, the things that we typically get from from our, our customers on, on security ask is more around uh, things like uh, IP whitelisting. You know, how can you make sure that uh, for whatever control plane you need access to, whether it's the application level or the Kube API or, or what have you, that that's not open to 0000. They, we've, we've recently actually released uh, enterprise data security, which allows you to basically restrict uh, even send employees from having access to the, uh, you know, to Kube, to the app. And it's a, a lot of it just comes around these uh, least privileged principles and, you know, 
we we have our back at every layer? How do you make sure that that is uh, consistent? And, and starting with you know just base principles of get things up to date, reduce the surface area, and reduce uh, privileges of everyone involved. And that's that seemed to to work well so far. Obviously, this you know it, it's it's all all always a work in progress, but we're we're trying to make sure that we can obviously continue to operate the whole thing at the same time. <laughs> so on kind of a related note to you know what Jeff was talking about in terms of staying on top of you know the revisions and as things change, I, I'm sure that's also really applicable to the different clouds. You know, um, there's there's always going to be updates to the systems and what those interfaces look like. Uh, is it something where fortunately you, you've just been able to kind of build it once and hope it stays stable? Or is there kind of a lot of management that goes along with being multi-cloud just to, to keep those interfaces working? It feels like most of the time that I run a Terraform, it's it's not unusual to get a message that like some argument that we're using is on its way to deprecation. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they do move relatively quickly. The I, I will say Kube itself moves uncomfortably quickly. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's been difficult to actually, uh, you know, keep keep up with those those revisions, and particularly uh, like fifteen to sixteen was a, a fairly hairy one. So we there's just a lot of updating we need to go do to to you know take care of all that, and then you know you need to not quite buy full downtime from the customers, but like you need to know that you're going to have some, some some amount of disruption, whether it's just uh, you know rotating nodes. Like we we do have couple services that don't really like being relocated so it's it's not a great business hours thing to do (laughs) are you freelancing or moonlining or maybe you've thought about going out on your own every week we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on the freelancer show to talk about becoming better at freelancing we also bring in experts to talk about marketing seo and delivering high quality to clients so if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. And then because each customer, you know, you're running single tenant, like I would assume that those updates need to be applied in a lot of places. Yep. Um, yeah. Running, building out that infrastructure must must be a job in and of itself. Yeah. So we... I haven't done a count recently. We had about a hundred clusters. I don't know if we're above or below that right now. But anytime you run a Terraform, you're terraforming two at a time, so <laughs> you you are looking at about fifty Terraform runs to take care of all that. Hey, I, I did recently put together a way to run the Terraform remotely, which at least means that I can kick it off and and sleep my laptop without it all shutting down. <laughs> Which was the previous issue. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, yeah, I, I like, especially with Terraform, like I can only imagine with Terraform, you're in this position where even if each part of the system moves slowly, you're going to be touching enough pieces that something's going to be changing all the time. Um, it's it's like that uh, that issue running lots of hard drives. Like uh, you know, if a hard drive has a you know ninety nine point nine percent or you know point zero one percent failure rate or whatever, when you're running enough hard drives, something's failing every single day. Um, <laughs> uh, fascinating. So I guess kind of diving back closer to the the core subject, like you know, what's the kind of that that differentiation between, you know, being Kubernetes native and being cloud native um, and, and kind of, you know, what as we you know talk about our listeners, someone that might be looking to apply this to their own needs, kind of how do you how do you balance that? How do you think that through? I, I think that the, the core difference between, you know, Kubernetes compatible and Kubernetes native is is sort of understanding of the ecosystem itself. So this is, well, so let me take a step back. There's cloud native, there's Kubernetes native. Cloud native, I think of it as these tools that can handle things like ephemerality, that can handle things like, you know, understanding that uh, you may have very, for example, high cardinality workloads. Like I, we, one of the quirks of our system is we, 
intentionally never run the same job more than once. In our system, every sh every job boils down to a um, uh, just a, a set of SHAs, the you know the the task SHA, the you know along with the SHA, the partitions that are going into it, and you know the the data SHA, what comes out of it, all these different pieces, and and what it means is that you can identify any given thing that we run by a, a unique SHA. What that does mean is uh, if we are, for example, attempting to monitor all of these different pieces and we have metrics that we want to be able to correlate to the actual units of work being done, we end up the cardinality of number of metrics times unique things we've ever done in our lives. So <laughs> like we, we ran into this issue recently as we tried to integrate with Sumo Metrics. Um, you know, they've been really fantastic with us for our, our logging, but we pretty quickly found that we couldn't actually send the sort of granularity and data that we wanted in our metrics along with the, the volume and have it be affordable. Um, it was yet another service provider who was quoting us like seven or eight figures. <laughs> it, it was immediately unviable and we were testing in a dev environment. So it was a whole thing. And, and this is something that you, you may not see if you're in, you know, a more classical world where you're running on a, you know, semi-homogenous, uh, you know, auto-scaling group of VMs that are all running the same monolith. If, if, you, if you don't have that same uniqueness, then a lot of these things don't matter. But we, we end up getting almost tightly coupled to tools like Prometheus because Prometheus was built to solve this exact issue of cardinality, where it can it can handle all of that uh, because it approaches the data differently. It doesn't try to do the same things that these other systems are trying to do. And so the, you know, it becomes computationally viable. <laughs> so dialing toward Kubernetes native, there, there is obviously the layer of compatibility that you must have with the APIs in the Kubernetes ecosystem. But the thing that I find even potentially more important is understanding the ecosystem. And this is where something like the fact that the, the way you authenticate to EKS is a bit weird is is an issue because uh, I've, I've worked with providers. We, uh, you know, we, we I was saying we did enterprise uh, data security just recently. Part of the way that we did that was we ensured that we had an auth proxy between us and our clusters. It, it happened to be the most, you know, the quickest way to actually put this all together. We're using gravitational. Uh, we're using teleport uh, for that proxy. Like it it does that job very well, but. One of the quirks that it had was that it, it sort of assumes that the kubeconfig is an independent credential on its own, which is actually not a safe assumption because the, the, the way that EKS auth works, because the kubeconfig supports this, is uh, it's literally a command that refreshes a token. And the command is a shell command that calls out for the Amazon CLI, which means you have to have Amazon creds and you have to have those resolved through the, you know, the cred resolution chain. Uh, so it, you, you, we ended up in a spot where we had these actual competing Amazon credentials uh, and it, it wasn't an issue of whether or not, uh, you know, teleport was Kubernetes compatible, but they happened to not have a really good way of like kind of sandboxing that or making sure that it wasn't affected by these other interacting components. And like they're working on a fix, teams love to work with, but it's, it was harder to set up as, as a result. And it's, it, it's just, it's one of those things because like EKS is a core provider of Kubernetes. You kind of need to know how it works and how that it inter interacts with whatever tooling you may be offering that needs to interact with it. You know, it's, we happen to have this fairly well buttoned up at this point because we've, we've had to connect a bunch of things to remote clusters, but it's not pretty. Yeah, I mean, I could imagine, you know, you guys are in a position where, you know, anytime you're looking at a vendor, you're going to kind of stress test them as a, an organization. You know, you can't even do some vendors, I'm sure, that like do great with AWS, maybe do great with GCP and don't support Azure. And that kind of struggles for, for you guys as a end consumer. So 
I'm thinking, so, you know, over time, you know, when when I was first working with cloud software, you know, we'd use AWS and we'd use kind of hey, everything out of the box. It's great. It's easy. You, you know, say what you will about the UI and UX of the, the AWS experience, but like you can get a lot of stuff done, you know, just in your web browser. And then you kind of reach a point where, okay, crap, now I need to spin this up in other regions or, you know, start, start scaling this and, you know, I, I think now more and more companies, they start with Infra's code. You know, that, that's, you're in a position where you can kind of plan all of that out, build all of that out. Um, and, and, you know, from the start so that you don't wind up hitting that, those pain points later. Um, similarly, I think more and more organizations are looking at containerization from the start. You know, where possible, let me put these services. And especially in those cases, you know, I think a lot of developers, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, put, put your Infra in code. Great. I like code. I like being able to put this in a repository. But containerization, I think there's there's definitely a bit of a additional lift to get things going that, that pays dividends down the uh, line. But, you know, it's definitely an investment up front. And we're seeing this steady shift towards people starting to accept that upfront investment. So I guess one of my kind of thought questions for you would be like, do you think that as you know, right now, the number of companies that have a need to be, you know, multi-cloud is very, you know, niche. But the advantages of it are, are really exciting and interesting. And there, there's cool things that you can get from that. Do you think that you'll see people ever plan for multi-cloud earlier or, or, or kind of look at those dependencies earlier? Or do you think it's something that kind of as you guys experience, you start with one place and then you say, okay, we'll bite the bullet now that we have that need? It's, it's a good question. The, so, so, I mean, off the bat, everyone should do infrastructure as code. Like, <laughs> there's no one should be doing things in the UI. It's not worth it. The uh, but but multi-cloud is a bit a bit weirder. So the the advantages that we get from it are there's two that come to mind. One is is again we can sell it to people in any cloud. The the relevance of that is is a little particular to our product because in many cases people have a security team that has uh, you know approved Azure for you know processing their data or you know maybe we're talking to a uh, uh, retail company and they're like you can run anywhere except Amazon. You are not processing our data on Amazon because they are a competitor. We see that a lot. That's half like that's more than half the reason we went to Azure was because people, you know, didn't think about GCP and they were not willing to go on Amazon. It's strategic for us as a as a sales advantage because of the the change in addressable market, and and that's huge. the The other sort of weirder advantage, and this this is partially a characteristic of of our system because we can because we're declarative and we can like replay the world from source, we can actually move an entire environment from one cloud to another in under two hours. It's extremely easy for us. And, and part of that is down to, it's like, we just put it in another place. We give it the same name, it's running on different hardware. You change like two things in your, you know, your Terraform config and you're, and you just let it backfill. So what this has, frankly meant is as we have had to think about our finances and and you know how we get the most out of our dollar running across these clouds we have leverage other companies don't have a, a lot of companies will talk about oh yeah you know like if amazon really sticks it to us on pricing we'll you know we'll move clouds like yeah, sure you will it's really hard <laughs> if you don't plan for it off the bat it's almost impossible to do and the clouds are aware of that but because of the way that we architected we're we're in a situation where if someone gives us a whole lot of credits we can move effectively all of our compute over to that cloud and just start using those credits so it's it's useful for that reason if you're not selling an infrastructure product because at the end of the day we're effectively selling infrastructure you know the, the way that we price is similar to emr it's like it is a tax on whatever you happen to consume if you're not doing that 
if you're, you know, selling a SaaS product, if you're, uh, I don't know, Marketo, uh, you know, you're, you have a, Marketo's not a CRM, what are they? Something else. They have a CRM. They're a marketing company. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> um, sorry, guys. Uh, if, if, you, if you're not selling to people who are consuming you as, as cloud infrastructure, you probably don't need to be multi-cloud. And there's a lot of advantages and, and simplicity that you can get from running on one cloud. You can, uh, you know, you, you can form tighter partnerships with the cloud provider. You can use the native stuff. Like the, <laughs> we are primarily using managed services. Well, I guess we're actually, no, we're exclusively using managed services. We're using managed Kubernetes and we're using managed MySQL. Don't manage your own databases. There's no reason to. And we're using blob storage. So it's it's all very, like, it all kind of runs itself. But because we're in multiple clouds, for example, if we wanted to look at doing uh, fully serverless services on Kubernetes, uh, that is possible in Azure and Amazon with uh, Fargate and ACI. Uh, there's no solution for that on GCP yet. They have cloud functions, but it's built for short-lived functions. I mean, it's it's a managed uh, kubeless, uh, or no, sorry, managed Knative implementation. It, it doesn't solve the same thing, and so we we can't actually make that advancement to our infrastructure. We can't, uh, you know, just string together Kinesis to a Lambda to an SNS queue to a whatever that all play nicely because we're just sitting in the Amazon ecosystem. We don't get to do that. We have to plug together all these different cloud native technologies ourselves for the, for the most part, you know, unless we can find a vendor to do it. And that is harder. Uh, you need to know a lot more. You, you know, you, you run into quirks frequently in implementation across all these clouds because, you know, when you are using these components, you're you're on the outer, outer edge of that, uh, you know, that Kubernetes substrate where you don't get to pretend that you're not on a specific cloud. You need to build all the switch statements. <laughs> like, this is how to behave here. Uh, and, you know, this is code that knows where it's running. <laughs> I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend building a multi-cloud infrastructure. In, in a lot of cases, it's unnecessary, and it's it's really hard. <laughs> if you can do it, like totally do it, and I think that there will be a point at which it, it does make sense. We we are seeing more. Um, like but most recently, the uh, provider I talked to that was interesting was uh, Spectre Cloud. They're you know doing another managed kube solution uh, built to just make Kubernetes very consistent across everywhere that you run, and they are undercutting the price of everyone else. Um, so, you know, we're, we're going to get there where uh, this will become an affordable thing, and we are seeing, like, it, it was in, until a couple months ago, you couldn't run spot instances on Azure uh, Kubernetes system on IKS. We managed to hack it together, like, about two weeks before they released it as a full first class product, <laughs> but like it wasn't an option, so it was it was extraordinarily expensive to run it, guess. But we're you know we we are kind not quite seeing convergence, but we're seeing uh, what looks a lot closer to future parity across uh, the clouds. And I think more people who are on on this leading edge are are getting a handle on the differences that matter and how to how to handle them you can reduce them to a relatively short list what you know when you get to that point and once enough people do that i think it, it, it will become more viable and we can see these more uh you know multi-cloud substrates which i would maintain is probably a myth for most people who say they're doing it right now quick observation on that. The, the enterprises I've worked with, a lot of my clients are more enterprise clients and they'll run into those types of things where, you know, generally they're, they started AWS and then for whatever reason, they may have to, you know, as was mentioned, you know, feature or something else sort of propelled them or propelled one group to, um, you know, to put a service up in Azure or something like that. And they struggle because it's tough to, it means, you know, it means basically having duplicate, people with those skill sets because you have people who are AWS people and they're not necessarily Azure people and you know managing it day in and day out and you know from an enterprise standpoint is it's a lot. Um, I mean there's just a lot of like you know getting your processes down and you know uh, managing roles and managing you know it's 
it's all those things of, you know, when we think about like security governance and it just goes along with it's well beyond security, but certainly it starts there where, you know, you just want to manage, you know, having least uh, amount of uh, privileges and responsibilities and sort of, and trying to figure out how to do that in multiple cloud environments is tough because there's no, I mean, it's all proprietary. There's nothing like, like you learned, well, how, I know how to do, I know how to manage roles. And I understand how they are in the AWS and therefore they translate to Azure. They, they don't at all. Yeah, it's it's tough. Um, I, I, I haven't seen anybody really do it well, uh, at least at the enterprise. I think smaller, more agile companies could probably handle it a little bit better, but enterprise com- companies really struggle with that. Yeah, uh, I, I am is completely different across all three clouds. Uh, I, I was, as part of the security work I was doing recently, um, <laughs> Yeah. I needed to restrict uh, access by origin, basically by, by you know, did you come from a DBC endpoint or a you know source IP that was valid for buckets in each cloud? And in each cloud, it required a completely different, substantial rearchitecture to how we access things. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's it's crazy when you, when you. I mean, we could spend a whole another hour on this subject alone, but if you look at just how Things like security groups, between the last time I looked at them, between um, the way Amazon does it and Microsoft and Azure does it, it's the opposite. Like <clears throat> whether something is you know open by default or whether it's completely closed off by default. And if you're not thinking about things and architecting it, understanding how they're doing it, man, you just you know either either it doesn't work or everybody in the world has access to it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but it's it's like all those little things that just sort of you know then then cascade on top of each other, and, and you can have a real mess. Entirely. Awesome. Well, we are to that end um, coming up on on our time. Um, uh, unless anyone has anything to to add, uh, love to move over to picks. Hey, folks. This is Charles Maxwood, and over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community, and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clavo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET focused or Microsoft focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out D-O-T-N-E-T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. Awesome. Um, so Pix is kind of the part of the show where we talk about you know, technology or TV shows or really anything that we're excited about, interested in, that's, that's helping us get through this pandemic. So uh, Jeff, do you have anything to kick us off? Yeah, I'll, um, I've been uh, just sort of waiting for a good project for to work on for me that um, really sort of gets me back into Elastic and the whole Elastic stack. Um, it's been several years and they've been doing a whole bunch of, I mean, it's like, they, they really sort of reworked the entire stack it's, to the point, by the way, I mean, this is, I, I think it's amazing what, like where it's going and, and what they're doing. They're really introducing a lot of um, security tooling, like sort of built in like a SIM um, security event management sort of built into it now and really sort of going that, that direction. But you know, what's sort of a little bit kludgy now is that the more I dig into it, I realize that. You know, just to do like a search or a query, there are like four or five different ways to construct and almost like basically different languages for constructing a query within Elastic. Um, they've got like they're now they've got, they've got their Kibana query language. They've got uh, they've moved from Lucene over to Painless, the Painless scripting language. They have um, you know Elasticsearch has a SQL sort of engine behind it. I mean, it's just like Wow. Like, and then trying to figure out like which one to use when for which use case. Like, so on the one hand, I love it because I, I think what they're doing is, is really some some really cool stuff from being able to just, you know, get your data in, visualize it or, or manipulate it or do what you need to do. But on the other hand, it's it's a little kludgy at the moment. So um, I'm, I'm still calling it a pick because I think it's really cool stuff. But um, but man, it's a bit of a struggle at the moment. 
They they have such a legacy of feature sets that they've supported over the years. I remember there was a point where I was performing MapReduce operations. They have a whole scripting language where you can say, perform these mappers, these, these induction operations. You can write a whole, you know, effectively Spark job, but running on Elasticsearch, running on the, the queries. It's incredibly performant. It was like shockingly, you know, it, it took us getting to a certain scale where, where uh, you know, transitioning that workload to Spark became more cost efficient. So, uh, but but it was also one of those things where I ran into an issue and we like spoke with Elastic Support and they're like, wait, you're doing what with us? <laughs> like we didn't even know we still had this feature. So yeah, it's, it's a really, really wild pro- platform. Awesome. Uh, Joe? Yeah, I've got a couple things. So I'm, I'm building a, a computer. It's been about six years since I built my last one. And I, I frankly looked at the market and someone said, hey, yeah, you can have 32 cores in machine. <laughs> And just like <laughs> at, at a you know only slightly obscene cost, I'm like I I had no idea. <laughs> so I'm, I'm building a, a Linux machine, AMD for the first time, and I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, it's it's going to be sort of my local development and build server, and uh, I'm kind of hoping to like build a little cloud in there with like you know like an S3 backend with Minio and and um, it's. I think that's going to be a, a real good time waster for me. <laughs> and I'm also working with my college professor again on a game that we started probably also about six years ago. Wow. And uh, it's called Let Better. It's a strategy war game uh, where you can play uh, asynchronously against your friends. Um, I wrote the original AI for it, which AI may be a strong word for, but, you know, it plays against you and it does well. So... <laughs> <laughs> that was super cool. Um, is, there, is there a, a link to that game yet, or is it still in development? Uh, still in development. I'm rewriting the back end. Awesome. We'll have <laughs> back to end one and like node one, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to check it out when it becomes available. Um, awesome. Yeah, on my end, um, you know, one of the ways that I've been spending my time during quarantine is cooking, uh, probably far too much if you ask my wife. So uh, one of the, you know, I like to take on projects, you know, day-to-day meals. I'll, I'll cook in 15, 20 minutes, but, you know, I'll give me a Sunday and I'll spend like eight hours with my smoker. And so uh, there's a, a really incredible website called Chef Steps that uh, yeah, I've been following for years. It was started by um, the team, some of the same team that worked on this uh, tome of a book called Modernist Cuisine. It is you know, like a thousand dollars, like six volume, incredibly well photographed book. Just like look that up online and the pictures are incredible. And then they've gone on to to kind of build this website, which just kind of highlights a lot of those really, you know, high, you know, end restaurant techniques. But, you know, over time they've made them very approachable for a home cook as long as you have some time to dedicate to the to the work. Um, and so that's uh, definitely one of my go-to resources when I have a, a new cooking project, and, and it's been a lot of fun working through that. I think that's everything we have for the show today. Uh, we're really a huge thanks, Joe, for, for being on the show. Um, Jeff, it's yeah. been a pleasure. Absolutely. It's always fun. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, thanks, everyone. Uh, and thank uh, you all for listening. And uh, it's been a pleasure. We'll, we'll see you next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.